Good morning, Chili Bible. It's not every day you get to sing from the, sing a song from the Middle Ages and sing in Hebrew, right? <laughs> but uh, but today we did. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the word Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It means praise. Halle, Hallel is praise. Okay, and the word Yah is short for Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, uh, praise the covenant-making God of the Old Testament, the God who called Abraham out of Ur, the God who spoke to Moses from the bush, the God who sent his son into the world to save sinners like you and I. So praise him indeed. Um, all right. Is it loud out there? Am I booming out across the room? It sounds loud here. So, all right. If, uh, yell at those guys back there if I'm yelling at you. <laughs> all right. Um, let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's open up our Bibles to uh, John chapter 18. All right. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, saving, helping, redeeming creating and recreating God, the God who made all things and who will one day make all things new, even better than they were before. And Father, we pray as we are in between the creation and the new creation that we might honor you and walk according to the image that you have made us, according to your, your image, Father, that we might reflect who you are. Uh, in our relationships with others, in our relationship with you, that we might shine the light of what life with God is supposed to be in a darkened world. And Father, we pray as we open your word that we would see in it your sovereign rule and the fulfillment of your perfect plan from eternity past. Uh, Father, help us to, to know you through your word. You know, we don't simply want to know more about the word, Father. We want to know you through it. And we pray that would be the outcome of our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, if you spend any time reading what non-Christians write about Jesus, sooner or later you will come across a presentation of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion and death that strongly implies that Jesus is merely an innocent victim of political and religious schemes beyond his control. Uh, that he is a great martyr to a cause, which is, of course, true, but limited in its understanding. Other people will see Jesus and present him as essentially a failed revolutionary who may have willingly gone to his death, but only because he couldn't really prevent it. He was just a man, after all, and he was caught up in all of this stuff. But the Jesus that we see in the Bible is something else entirely. The Jesus that we see in the Bible is Lord over the entire process. From his birth all the way through his life, even through his arrest and trial and suffering and death, Jesus never 
is less than Lord and sovereign over everything that he allows to take place to him. And it is he who knowingly, after all, uh, chose Judas to be among the twelve disciples. He knew from the beginning that he was the traitor. Think about that. He is the one who knowingly sent Judas from dinner to the authorities, remember? They're sitting at the table, and Jesus looks at Judas, and he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, get on with it, boy. I know what you're up to. And off Judas goes. He knowingly sent Judas to go betray him. We saw in chapter 17, we even see that he prays for his hour of glory on the cross to come quickly. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? And as we look at chapter 18 today, what we're going to see is that Jesus is totally in control of this entire thing. He is not simply a victim. He is Lord over every trial that he encounters. And by the way, that carries with it some implications for you and me. Because if Jesus is in control over every trial that he faces, then that gives me great hope that he is also not less than Lord over every trial that you and I go through. Amen? If He is Lord even in the details of His own death, He is Lord over the details of your suffering and your eventual death as well. Over every detail of your life, Jesus says that He is Lord. And He is in control sovereignly over every one of our circumstances. He is Lord of it all. And so I'd like you to, to turn with me, if you're not there yet, to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18. Uh, we're going to start in, uh, in verse 1. We've just got a few weeks left in the Gospel of John. We're going to wrap the last four chapters up pretty quickly. The Word of God says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken, of those whom you gave me I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Now imagine this scene. It's the middle of the night. They've left the upper room. Jesus has prayed for himself and for them and for us as they leave the mount, as they leave Jerusalem together. They go out on the east side of the uh, city of Jerusalem, probably out the east gate, all the way across, down through the, the Kidron Valley, across the, across the brook there, uh, and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. Now, by the way, this is a significant place. You may not know this. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will not be able to walk out the East Gate. And the reason is, is that the Muslims, when they ruled that city, walled it up because it is the city through which Messiah enters and leaves Jerusalem, according to the Scriptures. Uh, it is also, by the way, is that going to be a problem? <laughs> I don't think so. But in any case, in any case, the Mount of Olives is also a significant place. It is the place where Jesus is arrested. It is the place where Jesus ascends from. And it is the place, according to the Scriptures, where He will return. And one day it will split in two, going one half to the north and one half to the south. And there will be a valley there that you can walk through up to Jerusalem. This is a significant place. By the way, John also mentions there's a garden there. Anybody remember anything significant in human history that happened in a garden? <laughs> okay. In Genesis 3, where, was, where, where the first man and the first woman fell into sin, where was that place? It was the garden, right? It was the Garden of Eden. And so the very place where people fell into sin was a garden. And so the very place where Jesus selects, because remember, He's going to a place that is known to the traitor so that He will be able to be found. He's not hiding out somewhere. He is going to a place where the traitor has been so that Judas will know where to find Him. And it just so happens... According to Jesus' explicit plan and purpose to be in a garden because where the place that sin began was in a garden and so the place where sin begins to be defeated is also in a garden. Jesus picked the place. He is in control of the place. And more than that, He is in control of what happens. You ought to look at... Uh, verse 4, if you haven't, and underline it in your Bible where it says, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. In other words, none of this is a surprise. No one snuck up on Jesus and ambushed him. He knew all that would happen. Why? Because he is the Son of God. And he knew all this in advance. In fact, he planned, according to the Scriptures, all of it in advance. And as the Son of God, he's also in charge of whether or not he's arrested. And you might think that's, that's controversial, but look at what happens in the story. A whole mob of guys, imagine this. All these guys with swords and clubs and, you know, spears and all this stuff, torches and whatnot, come out, and it's the middle of the night, it's dark, and they surround this group of guys that have been praying in the garden. Now, John doesn't give us all the details about the prayer. You've got to go to the other gospel writers for that. But, 
But they all show up and surround this little group of guys. And, and Jesus stands up and he says, Whom do you seek? It isn't because he doesn't know who they're looking for. But because of what he does next. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at your, look at the, your Bible on this. This is fascinating. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And what does the text say they did? They drew back and fell on the ground. Now why is that? It is because when God makes himself known in the scriptures, the normal response, the regular pattern after the revelation of God is to draw back from him and fall to the ground. And these guys are the people coming to arrest him. And they draw back and fall to the ground at the statement, I am he. It's what prophets do when God makes himself known. What Israel did at Sinai. What Moses did at the burning bush. And it happens here involuntarily to everyone in this mob. you imagine what this looked like? Everybody's got their torches, everybody's got their sword or their spear or whatever, and all of a sudden, it's just, it's just you know, a mass of elbows and heels and feet and whatever, and everybody's laying on the ground. You know, and then you've got to kind of like pick yourself back up, right? Well, that probably looked inelegant, to say the least, right? And, and, and then he asks the same question again. And Jesus gives them the same answer. And then something very fascinating happens. Jesus speaks and he says, if I'm the one you're looking for, let all of these go. And they do. Isn't that fascinating? Because in a normal situation, if you were trying to, to prevent some sort of an uprising or a, revo or a revolution of some type, you would arrest not just the leader, but all of the followers you could find. And they're all conveniently located in the same spot. But Jesus says, let all of these go. And they go, okay. <laughs> and all of the disciples are able to walk free. How is that? According to the Scripture, it's because, it's because Jesus is fulfilling His own prophetic word. That He had already said... Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And so when Jesus tells you, let all these people go, they go, all right, I guess we have to let them go. Which is funny, isn't it? I mean, these guys have just picked themselves up off the ground like turtles that have been upended. And, and then Jesus tells them what to do and how to do the arrest. Uh, you're only going to arrest me tonight, boys. And they go, all right. And, and off they go. It's, it's fascinating, but it's because, it's because Jesus is Lord over his own betrayal and arrest. He is Lord over this entire thing. And in the middle of this, Peter tries to strike a blow on his Lord's behalf. He and, and what is amazing is how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, sick him, Peter. All right? 
He rebukes Peter and tells him, put your sword away. By the way, you're not much of a swordsman. You're supposed to hit him in the middle of the head, not on the side of it. <laughs> right? Um, but he takes off one of his ears. And Jesus reaches down, picks up the guy's ear, and sticks it back on his head and heals the guy in an instant. Now, imagine you're part, again, imagine you're part of this mob of people. And you see this happen. Wouldn't you be like a little, wouldn't the little hairs on the back of your neck go up just a little bit? Do you see that? I mean, Malchus lost his ear and Jesus just stuck it back on and it doesn't appear to have ever been missing. I'm not sure we should be arresting this guy. But nobody gives a second thought to that. About this tremendous revelation of his power in two instances. And they proceed with his arrest. It's an amazing thing. And I think what happens here is that neither these men in the mob nor Peter really understand what we are meant to understand. That Jesus isn't the victim in this process. That he is Lord over his own betrayal and his own arrest. And we also see his lordship over what happens next. Look at verses 12 to 14 with me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, these three verses, we get our, our introduction to Annas. Annas is one of the heads of the five families. All right? Some of you may have heard of the five families mentioned in a different context. You know, the old mobster movies, right? Five families in New York that used to run all the organized crime in that city. Well, in point of fact, there's not that much distinction between what's going on around the temple in Jerusalem with these five priestly families and that kind of corruption and racketeering that's going on. Because these five families basically pass the priesthood around between them as if it's something that they just get to decide, oh, I think it's your turn to be high priest. No, I know I was high priest last year. Oh, you were high priest for about 10 years. It's my turn. And, they, and, and the Romans get involved in the selection process, and all of these guys have their fingers in, in all of the political, religious pies that there are around. And they become very wealthy and very corrupt. And Annas is the leader of one of these. He is father-in-law uh, to Caiaphas. Both of these men served as high priest at different times. Uh, Annas for about 15 years, which is why he is later referred to in the text as the high priest, even though he's not the current high priest, he's been the high priest, and so he keeps the title. And John mentions again for the second time that he is related to this man, Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And that Caiaphas had said that it would be a good idea if we had one man die for the people. 
Now, what Caiaphas meant in that original comment was that he was afraid that Jesus would lead a messianic movement that would attract all the wrong attention from the Roman Empire and that they would come in and take away the temple and take away all their priesthood and all their power and all their wealth, and that would be a bad thing. Because after all, I mean, we wouldn't want the actual Messiah to rule because that would mean that we wouldn't. And so it would be good if we just put this one guy to death. That's what Caiaphas had in mind. But what John is pointing out is that even the corrupt plans of a wicked man are sovereignly intended to be prophetic by the living God. And one man is about to die for the people, not in the way that Caiaphas intends. Caiaphas says better than he knows. God is using his own mouth to talk about what Jesus is doing. That Jesus is going to lay down his life for the people, and not just the people of Israel, but for all people who are subject to sin and death. And to offer himself in, in their place to lay down his life for them to take God's wrath on himself that they might be brought into the family of God. And John is highlighting this again. He's like, hey, by the way, remember when Caiaphas said this before? This is the same guy that's connected to that guy. And this is what is happening. And the reason he brings it up again is simply to point out that Jesus is doing exactly what Caiaphas inadvertently predicted. Because God is in control of even the wicked priest's mouth. How about that? He is Lord even over that guy. Now, keep reading with me. Simon Peter, this is verse 15... Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke uh, with this, to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret why do you ask me ask those who have heard me what i said to them they know what i said when he had said these things one of the officers standing by struck jesus with his hand saying is that how you answered the high priest jesus answered him if what i said is wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what i said is right why do you strike me Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. 
One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now let me clarify a few things here for you. The high priest's house that they went to, that's Annas' house. He's the former high priest, so they, John calls him still the high priest. And the person identified as the other disciple in the text here, that's John, the writer of the gospel. He never refers to himself by name in the gospel, but he uh, constantly refers to himself by titles like the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, etc., but never by his own name. I think he's, he wants to be able to tell the story as it happened, but he doesn't want to make himself seem like the hero. He wants Jesus to be the hero as he is, and so he never includes his own name in the retelling. But John is known to the high priest and so he just walks right in through the gate because the servant girl knows him. He's been there before. But Peter doesn't have any connections. And so when Peter goes up to the gate, the servant girl stops him. He says, I don't know you. I don't know what you're trying to do. And then John comes to get him. And just before John gets him in, the girl goes, wait a minute. I don't think you were part of the group that went out to arrest Jesus. Are you one of his disciples? What's Peter say? Not me, babe. I don't know <laughs> anything about that. Right? No, no, no. Not me. And so she allows him entry. And on this cold, dark night... He goes and stands, not this time against the mob, but with the mob that came to arrest Jesus. Around the fire, he's not fighting with them, he's warming himself among them and standing by their fire. Quite a contrast. And while that's going on, Jesus is being interrogated. Annas is demanding answers to questions about Jesus' teaching and about his disciples. And Jesus, notice, doesn't say, well, there's two of them standing right here. You can ask them. He doesn't say that. Instead, he does what a typical Jewish rabbi would do and answer a question with a question. And he says, you know... I've taught publicly all over the country. Hundreds and even thousands of people heard me, and I didn't teach in a corner. I taught at the temple. You can ask any one of them about what I said. Why don't you ask them? By the way, why does he respond that way? It's because Jesus knows what's really going on, right? This isn't a theological discussion that we're having. This isn't, a, this isn't, you know, well, we wanted to clear up a few points of debate. That's why we sent out the mob with torches and weapons in the middle of the night. No, that's not what's going on. 
And Jesus, in asking his question, is trying to lay bare the reality that he's not on trial for his teaching at all, but because of who he is and who he therefore claimed to be, the Messiah, Son of God, who had been promised Israel. And they don't think he is. And Jesus says, yes, I am, and I've continually proved it. Because, see, the thing is, is if it's true who Jesus is and who he says he is, if that's all true, then Annas and Caiaphas and all the other priestly families will quickly lose their influence and their power and their wealth. And more important to them are those things than the fulfillment even of God's prophetic promises. Now, surely no one would ever be so foolish as to trade worldly pleasure for everlasting life, right? That's obviously a sarcastic question. People do it all the time. Amen? And these men make that trade. One of the officers, I think, feels the weight of the question. I think his conscience is pricked. And rather than repent, what does he do? He reaches over and slaps Jesus upside the head and says, Is that how you talk to the high priest? Because he refuses to recognize what is obvious right in front of him. Remember, this guy saw Jesus stick a guy's ear back on. He saw it happen. He was one of the guys that fell to the ground when Jesus said three words. He can see right in front of him. In fact, he is a participant in a demonstration of God's power not ten minutes before. And then he says, is that how you talk to the high priest? Like the high priest is somebody important when God stands before you. Jesus again asks a question. And it's a penetrating question. One that brings the interrogation to a close. After this question, nobody has anything else to say. He says, if what I've said is wrong, point it out. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? And they know what is true. That what he said is correct. And they don't have any real argument. And so Annas just says, get him out of here. Take him to Caiaphas. And right at that moment, there's another servant girl. And another question. And another denial. And someone else says, wait a minute. Here in the firelight, you look awfully familiar, but you're not one of us. What about you? Are you one of his disciples? The guy we're taking off to get killed? No, I'm not. And what happens? The rooster crows. Why? Because Jesus had told Peter before this happened... Before the rooster crows tonight, 
you will deny three times that you even know me. And that is exactly what happened. Because Jesus is Lord even over the interrogation, even over the trial, even over Peter's denials. He knew what would happen. He orchestrated the crowing of the rooster to happen in the instant of the third one. The point that John is making here is a very simple one. That Jesus is not the tragic victim of a traitor caught up in political machinations by a corrupt ruling elite. That's not what happened. He remained throughout this entire thing the sovereign Lord of all creation. He was, the, he was Lord over who would betray Him and how and where. He was Lord over the men who came to arrest Him. He was Lord over the words that Caiaphas spoke in the secret chamber. He was Lord over Annas' interrogation. He was Lord even over Peter's denial. He is Lord over the crowing of the rooster and when it happens. He is Lord over every part of this in order to bring salvation to you and me. But let me remind you of why His Lordship over all these details is important. It's important theologically because it teaches us that Jesus did not relinquish His sovereignty as God in order to become a man. Jesus is and is fully and completely a human being who possessed a fully human nature. Amen? He suffered in every way just like we do. He was tempted in every way just like we are. But, and He was a fully human man yet without sin. Because He is also fully and eternally God. And He is reigning over even the circumstances of His own arrest and trial. And that theological truth is important for us because it means that Jesus will not suddenly one day lose His sovereignty over your life and over my life when we go through trials and difficulties of a much less difficult, much less life-threatening manner. And that is vital because sooner or later... Sooner or later, you're going to go through something painful and hard and enduring through that. What you're going to have to cling to is theology. Some people don't like that word. They don't even like the idea. Oh, theology. That's what like guys in you know, tweed jackets who live in the library and smoke pipes, that's what they're into, right? But let me tell you why theology is vital. Okay, Why it's vital that we understand that God is sovereign over all the circumstances of your life and mine. I'll give you an illustration. I sat in uh, that room over there when I was doing my um, transfer of ordination from my original church family into the Evangelical Free Church. This was four or five years ago. I was doing that. And I was talking a lot about the sovereignty of God as they're interviewing, my, you know, interviewing me and my theology and trying to, you know, it's basically about four hours of stump the pastor, right? 
uh, is basically what it is. And all of your fellow pastors sharpen their theological knives for this, right? Everybody loves that. And I was talking a lot about the sovereignty of God, and one of the guys says to me, yeah, that's all really, really good, but what practical relevance does that have when you tell somebody whose child has been killed in a car accident? And this is what I said. I said, well, here's what I would tell them, is that that's very hard but I am never going to tell somebody that that is beyond God's control. I'm not going to say that God plays dice with the universe and things just randomly happen and he's not Lord over those things. Because you think that if, if that's the way it happens, that God is not really in control, that that's somehow comforting, but in fact you've robbed me of the only source of comfort that I have. That, in other words, that the universe doesn't catch God by surprise. That when I got Crohn's disease at 16 years old and, and I had to take 60 milligrams of prednisone for months that covered my body with acne from here to here, that caused me to sweat through the sheets every night, that made me wildly hungry and contributed to my magnificent physique. <laughs> okay, that, that did all of these things to me. That continues to cause me to bleed periodically. That has given me more trip to the colonoscopy shop than, than any 45-year-old I know. That continues to, to, to wreak havoc in my body periodically. I, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask myself this question as I'm going through that. Or if you're going through something much worse. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you, found, you got diagnosed with something that is horrific. And you, they, the doctor tells you you've got six months. Or eventually you're going to be wheelchair bound. Or eventually you're going to have a bag running down your leg instead of going to the bathroom. Or eventually, this is what's going to happen. Or your spouse comes down and tells you, I want a divorce. Or any number of, a, of, of any kind of horrible things that happen in life. The question that I want to know the answer to is this. God, are you at the stick? Amen. Do you have the rudder of this ship? Are you in control of this storm? And I want to hear back from the Lord out of His Word, yes! And praise God, that is the answer that He gives. That when the water goes over my head, and I can't swim anymore, and I am living in Psalm 69, and I say, my voice is hoarse from calling for you, and my eyes are worn out looking for you. Are you there? That God comes back with, yes! I am right here. I am right in the same place that I was when I allowed my son to be crucified. 
and that I orchestrated all of the circumstances of that trial in your life just for the same reason that I orchestrated the trial in Jesus' life to bring me glory and to bring you good. That these are the things that I allow and nothing comes into your life that does not pass first through my sovereign loving fingers. And you have got to trust me through this. You have got to trust me through this because I am trustworthy and I have a plan and I have a purpose and I have a design to bring glory to me and to bring good out of this for you. And He does. He does. He will out of every circumstance according to the plan and purpose of God, according to the promise of the Word of God, bring glory to Himself and bring good for you out of this. Whatever it is. And I don't care what it is. If it's criticism or cancer. If it is unemployment or ulcers that God sees and knows and plans and purposes to bring glory to Himself and good for you as you trust Him through it and obey Him in it. Amen? Because that, this is the example that Jesus gives. Not only that He orchestrates this whole thing, but that knowing all that would happen, He obeys God plan all the way through it there's never a time when he says nope father i know we planned this from eternity past but i'm out right now this is me tapping out i'm done saving those people is not worth it he obeys god's plan all the way through even even as he sovereignly controls and think about this That means he sovereignly planned and purposed for that guy to slap him in the face. He sovereignly plans and purposes for the scourging, for the driving of the nails, for the hanging on the cross, for the mocking, the spitting, the beard pulling, the crowning with thorns, the mocking sign. Every detail of it is planned and purposed by God for his glory and your good. And if that is true for Him, it is also true for you and me. It's also true for you and me. And to me, that is why theology is wonderfully comforting. Because it's not just a term like God's sovereignty is not simply something I ought to memorize about God for a test. It is something you need to know because there will be a test. Amen? And when the test comes, you're going to have to trust God that He is Lord of your circumstances. And that He is watching over you to bring glory to Himself and good for you out of all of this. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise you we give you honor and glory because whatever trials we go through you are lord of them all just as you were lord over those that jesus went through you design them you plan them you have purpose in them and and your purpose is the same our good and your glory father may we trust you 
May we follow you. May we be obedient to you in them that we might know you and glorify you all the way through, all the way to the end until the day when we see the pattern that you were weaving out of the trials and tribulations and good things and joys of our lives. And Father, we, we pray that you might cause us by your Holy Spirit to trust and obey no matter what comes and to trust your hand in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs>